Welcome to Morning Report Top Stories, a selection of news from RNZ's morning news programme. Well, a group of former Gloria Vale members have filed a claim for lost wages and compensation at the Employment Relations Authority that is believed to total more than $5 million. The claim follows two employment court rulings that six women and three men were the Christian community's employees. Our reporter Jean Edwards has the exclusive details and joins us now. Hi Jean, what have you learnt about these uh, entitlements the former Gloria Vale members are claiming? Well, this is the first time a dollar figure has emerged that formally quantifies just how much Gloria Vale could owe these six women who brought that Pilgrim case last year and the three men who were at the centre of the earlier Courage case in 2022 and were all found by the Employment Court to have been the community's employees. So they can claim payments for lost wages, breach of minimum entitlements, compensation and penalties. So I understand proceedings have now been filed with the Employment Relations Authority and that those claims total more than $5.2 million. Now, the court's rulings had ramifications for others in the same situation, so the group's supporters are calling for other levers and even current members in that position to join a wider claim for entitlements that I'm told could ultimately top $20 million. I asked Gloria Vale for a response to the figures, but a spokesman didn't want to comment because of the ongoing legal proceedings. And, and of course, the community has always denied that these former members were ever employees. Who at Gloria Vale uh, is liable to pay here if, if they were in fact, if they in fact uh, ruled that way? Well, yes, this certainly hasn't been a straightforward question, um, but the Employment Court's um, chief judge released a reserve decision answering it uh, in the women's case last month. Now, because of Gloria Vale's complicated legal structure, it wasn't clear until then exactly who their employer was and who might be liable to pay former employees their entitlements. Christina Ingalls found actually that the women's employer was the overseeing shepherd who was, um, as she put it in the judgment, the ultimate controlling force in the community, you know, the string puller, meaning former employees can seek back pay and compensation from the community's current leader, Howard Temple. Now, importantly, she found it was the role, not the actual person holding the position that carries the ultimate authority. So whoever holds the role of overseeing shepherd is liable to account for any breaches, uh, alleged, alleged breaches. Uh, but just to note, of course, that the uh, court is yet to rule on the identity of the men's employer. Um, they were working for Gloria Vale's commercial businesses on factories and farms, not on the community's domestic teams as the women were doing um, cooking, cleaning, laundry, preparing food, that kind of thing. Mm. What do we know about Gloria Vale's actual financial situation and their ability to potentially pay out millions? Well, yes, this is a big sum of money by any measure. Um, and Gloria Vale members told the Employment Court last year during that case involving the six women that the community couldn't afford to pay everyone wages and even that employment relationships um, would destroy their Christ- Christian way of life. Um, but in her judgment, um, when she declared that the women were in fact employees, Chief Judge Ingalls said the court wasn't concerned with the merits of Gloria Vale's way of life or its religious underpinnings. And she said that the community's financial situation, including its extensive acquisition of more property, didn't sit well with a claimed lack of capacity to pay for women's work. Now, according to its last annual return to charity services, Gloria Vale's um, net assets were worth $46 million in 2022, although the Leavers lawyers think the community is worth around $65 million. All right, so what happens now? 
Well, now that the former members' claims have been um, filed with the ERA, um, there'll be more sort of legal um, discussion, but they could be heard by the court, although the parties are likely to be directed to mediation. And I also wanted to note that um, Gloria Vale's bid to appeal against that employment court declaration that the women were employees was largely dismissed by the Court of Appeal last month, but the appeal court did ask for um, more submissions on whether leave should be granted on two um, fairly narrow questions of law. So there's still a lot of um, legal argument to come. Very good. Thank you very much for that uh, report. That was Jean Edwards, our reporter there. Well, MPs are converging on the capital this morning as Parliament kicks back off again for 2024. Our Deputy Political Editor Craig McCulloch joins us now for more on this. Kia ora, good morning, Craig. Kia ora. Busy day down there at Parliament. What is on the agenda for day one? Indeed, a big first day back here um, on day one at Parliament as the whole system rears back into action. This is what we call here Super Tuesday because all of those usual Monday events get shunted to today because of yesterday's public holiday. So first up, we have all the various caucus meetings going on around the building for some like Labour. This will be their very first caucus meeting for this year. The first time checking in with everyone after summer. National of course had their caucus retreat a couple of weeks ago but this is their first I guess regular meeting of 2024. After that cabinet ministers are expected to meet and then the whole of parliament in the afternoon will meet question time the whole shebang. Now usually we would also get the Prime Minister's regular weekly media conference in the Beehive Theatrette later on. That has been canned today just because of the packed schedule. So we will still get a few chances to put questions to Mr Luxon. And of course, he will be on the programme tomorrow morning. As well as all of that, there are also a smattering of maiden speeches from national MPs later on today. Some new MPs to be sworn in. It's day one for the Greens MP Celia Way Brown replacing Golrie's government. So it is a rather hectic reintroduction to Parliament here. And still some time to ask questions because, of course, aside from that post-Cabinet press conference, we've got the caucus runs which give uh, journalists the opportunity to question uh, politicians and then, of course, you know, question time in Parliament as well. So what are the things uh, that will the main issues that will be brought up in those question times, do you think? There are a few big topics on the agenda. For one, we have questions around the Israel-Gaza situation. Will New Zealand follow its Five Eyes partners in, in, in pulling funding for one of the UN agencies, the UN Relief and Works agencies? The government has not pulled its funding so far. New Zealand contributes about a million dollars a year. That commitment is currently being assessed. So the question, of course, is will New Zealand change course? There are, of course, major continuing questions around the public service cuts, which are planned massive interest from public servants over their job security. I would not expect any decisions there in the near future, but proposals are due back soon from the various departments and agencies, and that, that, that's going to be a conversation topic for a while. OK, what about Māori relations? Is this another issue that the opposition will be zeroing in on? A- absolutely. The Treaty Principles Bill is going to stay in the headlines, especially with Waitangi approaching. Expect the opposition parties to really zero in there on the differences between the three parties. They sense Nationals' vulnerability. They sense the discomfort there. It was quite apparent before the election, the differences between the three coalition parties when it comes to treaty issues. And they have only become more defined since then. Those differences over, for example, whether the treaty is a partnership over who qualifies for Tino Rangatiratanga, 
for example. In terms of other topics as well, I should mention we are expecting a debate on the Red Sea deployment today, so a ministerial statement and then debate about that. Labour and the Greens have been very critical, so expect them to speak up there. And I would expect the opposition to zero in uh, on the Associate Health Minister, Casey Costello. RNZ, of course, had a story last week around her decisions um, uh, uh, surrounding a potential tobacco excise, or oh, sorry, a uh, uh, pause to tobacco excise increases. So she is new to that role of Associate Health Minister, new to Cabinet. There have been questions around her conduct so far, and the opposition, I expect, would continue to prosecute that. Potentially two questions for Christopher Luxon about that as well. Is he satisfied with her handling of the matter? She, of course, said she didn't seek advice. It appears documents show she did. So I would expect questions around that from the opposition too. Okay. It looks like a very busy day ahead for uh, the political gallery and, of course, all of those politicians as well. Thank you uh, for your time this morning. That was our Deputy Political Editor, Craig McCulloch, just previewing uh, the kicking off of Parliament for the first time in 2024. Waitangi Tribunal members and claimants are meeting today in Waitangi to consider the design of a constitutional inquiry. Now, the inquiry will reportedly seek to establish what a contemporary constitution for Aotearoa New Zealand might look like that is compliant with the treaty. The first of what is likely to be several regional meetings will be presided over by the Tribunal Chair and Chief Judge of the Māori Land Court, Karen Fox. On the programme yesterday, New Zealand First Deputy Shane Jones said he objected strongly to the inquiry. Mr Jones said any change to the constitution should be the prerogative of democratically elected officials. Where on earth does the Waitangi Tribunal think it's got a higher level of moral authority to undertake that exercise, possibly very divisive, without recourse? Well, on the line from Waitangi is Ngāti Hine Chairman Waihoroi Shortland, who says the inquiry is overdue and 184 years in the making. Kia ora, good morning. Uh, Your reaction to Shane Jones, he says that the tribunal is, shouldn't be doing this. What would you say to him? Well, I, what I'd say to him is that <clears throat> for someone who's well-schooled in the way <clears throat> Māori have uh, attempted to give voice to all of their concerns about um, the um, uh, <clears throat> the problems that uh, various governments have had with the treaty. It's it's a little bit rich at this end of the game to not to talk about engagement with with Maori and then say we shouldn't engage. Come and listen to the to to what is being proposed, and then you may find that the, that we all have the same goals. We all want to address um, uh, some some form of constitutional change. What what's being proposed by Seymour right now is uh, down to it some kind some form of constitutional change. They are they sh- they shouldn't be the only people who get to consider that. Mm. They talk to us, you know, Colin, they talk to us about engaging in debate and discussion, and, but only in, in the terms that they want to set. In, OK, yeah. but is the, I guess the argument he's making is that is the tribunal the right forum? It, is, it was obviously preliminary, presumably set up initially to deal with claims uh, right. and has been dealing with contemporary claims in recent times as well. But my understanding is that what... Most of those are in private, and so is there an issue there around uh, the public needing to be able to be involved and see what and is happening and, and, and put their own input in? 
Uh, no, I, I think that's that's uh, uh, not quite uh, on the mark. Um, the the hearings or well, the inquiries have always been open. Um, whether you're you're sitting in, whether you're going to participate, there are, there are some processes for engagement. Now, um, we were invited in as as Tikanga um, uh, people to try and and devise a process in which we could engage. And the Crown is absolutely a participant here. In earlier inquiries, the Crown always came to these things as an observer and then made some some commentary almost after the inquiry, at the end of the inquiry, uh, on their position. Now they're being invited to be part of the inquiry, to offer things as as we are, the discussion is unfolding, to be able to to be part of the engagement. Right. No, well, that, that's very interesting. So this is a different style of inquiry here. You would, what would be the forum? How, how would you? How will you do it? Yeah. Now, um, we're going to do it in a, in a forum that uh, Mr. Jones is 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 well well schooled in. Um, we're going to, to we're, well, the, the tribunal has invited us to create a process uh, based on how um, things are engaged with in a Whareinui. And that's the process we've come up with. Now, in the, in the Whareinui, there is one side of the house that's given to the host. We presume that will be the Maori side. Then what we call the rangatira side of the house, we are giving over to the crown and inviting them to sit in that to contribute, don't be an observer. Don't if you talk about engagement on these issues, let's do it in this kind of forum where mm. you have you have a right to present, you have a right to engage. You don't don't wait until recommendations are made. You get involved. So you that's an interesting change. And just on that, so that the the Waitangi Tribunal makes recommendations. The Crown is not bound by them. That, yes. that would be the same here, right? You would presumably hold your inquiry, come up with some findings, some recommendations, some constitutional recommendations. It would then be up to Parliament to decide, right? So this is Shane Jones's other argument. He's saying that, that this is an issue for democratically elected representatives to deal with. You think this could be, could be got round? Oh, look, yeah, there, 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 is, there is no doubt that everybody's aware that that's, that's where these will lead to. But then... Our, our, our view is, armed with what you may uh, find by engaging with the process, you will make better decisions. You will make better decisions than, than uh, Mr. Seymour is, is trying to do now by reinterpreting the, uh, the, the, the principles of the treaty in, in a fashion that even as we listen to him, we can see that he has no concept of the words about which he speaks. Just one final question, Waihoroi. He, he also alludes to this idea, and it's often raised, that there is a conflict between constitutional change in terms of what Māori might want, and this may be in terms of co-governance, of, of public services and this sort of thing, clashing with the idea of a liberal democracy and the way in which a democracy runs. How do you square that off? Oh, look, um, I mean, if, 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 if that were so, uh, the, the, the simple retort is how privileged have we been under the things they've delivered to us, which have 
um, delivered so many breaches of the treaty over the 184 years. Um, how privileged have we been that we end up at the bottom end of all of the um, the uh, the way you can look at the, the progress of this nation? How how privileged have Maori been? Because that is how it's been sold that somehow Maori are absolutely privileged by this treaty. Mm. And just finally, and if we were, you know, I'm I'm still waiting to see how how well we have been privileged. I understand what you're saying. Just finally, are you worried that Shane Jones is going to shut this down? I mean, he has signalled he wants a review of the tribunal. Oh, look, I, 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 I've got every faith in the fact that Mr Jones is well able to, to, um, to know what Māori are talking about. And he, he, he cannot feign um, uh, uh, a, a position that he isn't aware of from a Māori perspective. So um, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not bothered that... that, right. uh, that I think if he engages, he, again, is one of the, the few people uh, we, we feel uh, could bring an understanding mm. to those who are less fortunate than him. Well, we'll see how things uh, play out, obviously, with Waitangi just around the corner. I really appreciate the kōrō this morning there, Waihōroi Shortland, uh, Waitangi, uh, from Waitangi, Ngāti Hine Chairman, uh, who's part of the group helping establish the sort of framework for this uh, and how it will work, this constitutional inquiry that the Waitangi Tribunal uh, is seeking to carry out. Well, the United Kingdom is charging ahead with plans to limit accessibility of smoking and vaping in an attempt to create, this will sound familiar, a smoke-free generation. The move is based on New Zealand's smoke-free laws, which are to be repealed by the coalition government. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak says stopping young children from picking up vaping is vital to public health. My job as Prime Minister is to do what I believe is right for the long term of our country. And if you talk to any parent or teacher, as I've been doing here at this school in Darlington this morning, they'll talk about the worrying rise in vaping amongst children. Now, children shouldn't be vaping. We don't want them to get addicted. We still don't understand the full long-term health impacts of vaping. So it's right that we take strong action to stamp this out. That's what we're doing. Banning disposable vapes, taking powers to go after the flavours, the appearance, the packaging where vapes are displayed in stores, but also improving enforcement, making it easier to levy on-the-spot fines at retailers who shouldn't be selling to kids. Taken together, it's a strong set of measures so we can improve our children's health. It's the right long-term thing for the country. Well, joining us now for more on this is the BBC's <coughs> political correspondent, Rob Watson. Uh, good morning, Rob. Welcome to the programme. Can you tell us what the, the nuts and bolts of the rules your Prime Minister has announced? Because they cover smoking and vaping, don't they? Well, good, good morning, Ingrid, and good morning to everybody. So, so the broad general thrust of what Rishi Sunak is trying to do is to create what he calls a, a smoke-free generation. And so it's got two parts to it. The first part was announced at the Conservative Party conference, and that is, as you say, as was suggested in New Zealand, to have uh, a ban on anyone buying cigarettes who was born after 2009. So that's one part. And then the second part is to make disposable vapes illegal. Legal. And we think that there's going to be legislation sometime between now and the election, which is expected.
between now and the end of this year and that any sort of new measures would come into force in 2025. Okay, so this will be an election issue then. How is the idea being received at the moment? Well, Mr Sunak said it's not really an election thing. And and, and although one always wants to be amazingly sceptical of what politicians say, right, Ingrid, I mean, in many ways, it's not a political issue for the simple reason that the the main opposition Labour Party is is broadly very much in favour of this. Opinion polling suggests that most British people uh, are pretty much in favour of this kind of thing, which is kind of odd because you, you know, you think that the British people have that reputation a bit for sort of not liking the, the nanny state. But I think by and large, people are on side with this. And as I say, most of the most political parties in Britain are on side. So it, it's only political in the sense that there's a the, the kind of the libertarian right of the governing Conservative Party don't like this at all. And the former Prime Minister, Liz Truss, anyone remember her, Ingrid? Mm. She's, uh, she's sort of saying, look, the government shouldn't, shouldn't be in the business of banning stuff. What about industry? Any pushback there? Oh, definitely, yeah. You, you can imagine. The, the argument for the, from the producers of disposable vapes is that, look, if, if, if you come, go ahead with a ban like this, what's going to happen? They're going to be illegal products. Some people will go back to smoking. Why don't you, they argue, just enforce the existing laws? Because it's already against the law in this country for someone who's 18 or under to buy a disposable vape. So the industry says, why don't you just get on and enforce your own laws, your existing laws, rather than create new ones? So this would make the UK world leaders in in smoking and and vaping restrictions. Is that a mantle uh, your Prime Minister will be pleased about? Uh, Very much so. I mean, uh, I was very surprised to to hear. I I don't know about you, Ingrid, whether you knew this, but I was reading one of the papers at the weekend. People listening will know he's an incredibly sort of trim, slim uh, figure who doesn't seem to have have any vices, (laughs) he doesn't drink, (laughs) and he he doesn't smoke. But you know what I heard? A man after my own heart. Well, he's, he's obviously got a real kick on the old health front because I was reading in one of the papers, and Downing Street confirmed this, that he does this 36-hour fasting stuff. So from 5 p.m. on a Sunday, he doesn't have anything to eat until 5 a.m. on a Tuesday. So, I mean, I, I just threw that in there because it's kind of amazing, right? But but I yeah. think he is one of those politicians who, who sort of genuinely thinks that, you know, my goodness, we all need to get a lot healthier. And, you know, when it comes to health standards, we, we Brits in Europe are just about one of the sickest <laughs> countries in Europe. Oops. Okay, well, um, yes, he's obviously uh, setting a a fine example there. Thank you very much for your thoughts this morning. That was uh, the BBC's political correspondent, Rob Watson. The UK now looking to have a smoke-free generation. Wellington Water is asking uh, Wellington City Council for $2.5 billion over the next 10 years to achieve the best outcomes for water infrastructure in the city. Chief Executive Tonya Haskell says it's uh, the maximum they are asking from the council, which uh, would work out to about $250 million a year, but the spending would increase later in the decade. Tonya Haskell uh, joins us on the line now. Kia ora, good morning. Morning, Corin. Uh, $250 million a year, $2.5 billion over 10 years. Will that be enough? Um, it's a great question, but I'm going to start with a clarification, if that's okay. Our job is to provide advice to the council, so we haven't sought $2.5 billion. We've given them the advice of if they could invest this amount of money, this is what we could deliver over the next decade. 
Well, that's a pretty fine definition there, isn't it? I mean, you're the experts. It's not far off seeking it, is it? Well, um, it's the council's assets, and ultimately the council needs to make the decisions on its assets. So we have done this for each of our shareholding councils. So what is it that they need? What's their advice on what they need to invest? And then they have to go away and work out what they can afford, which, of course, is the tricky question right at the moment. Understand. Okay. But you is two hundred is two point five billion dollars the minimum? Uh, no, it's not the minimum. The two point five billion is how much we think we can deliver in a decade. So you've heard me talk about you know the whole region needs a billion dollars a year for the next ten years. Wellington. That is around 400 million, but we could only probably deliver about 2.5 million over the 10 years. It's ramping up as we have done in the past, keeping up, improving our capability, and we can deliver 2.5 billion. It's so, so, so what, what what's could. the barrier to stopping you delivering more? It's not money. You're saying it's it's what infrastructure, it's staff, it's disruption. What is it? All of the above. So we have in our capital program, growing the program 30 to 40 percent a year. So that's what we know is a sustainable uplift for the region and for Wellington City. Um, and then there's there's a maximum amount you can do in a city. <laughs> Quote in the paper about the road kind is exactly right, but that's a that's a slick way of saying we have to dig up roads, we have to interrupt private properties. There's a maximum amount that the city would be able to sustain. Um, so there's that, and then our, we've got our panels of contractors that are able to build to produce that. Um, but there will be a top out of the amount of resources and the amount of people we can apply. But what's worse, running out of water or, or having to put up with traffic disruption? <laughs> Definitely running out of water, isn't it? And that's why we've got to find a good middle ground, right? We've got to we've got to work out what can we deliver, what can council afford, and then do a good job of prioritising the right things. You know, for the region, and of course, water is top of the list for that one. So, just to be clear, is it the disruption that is the biggest problem here? Literally digging up roads and finding pipes that are leaking and this sort of thing, or getting to them, or is it other things in terms of the staff, the engineers, the people you need to do it? You're right on the money there. So, you have to build capability. Um, we are, we have been in the region with our suppliers. Building the amount of people they've got, bringing in more resources, the more secure their pipeline of workers, then they can bring in new technology, more people. But it does take a while to do that. And as I say, we have been doing that steadily for the past few years. We would need to keep picking that up. And that's across the region. It's not just Wellington City. I mean, there are a lot of there's a lot of roadworks going on in Wellington at the moment. Anyone can see. Obviously, there's a, a massive plan to build uh, cycleways. There's a lot of resealing going on. Can some of that work not be shifted across, or could it be shifted across? That's um, a decision for council to make, Corin. Okay, what is the secret report that keeps getting talked about that in, into you guys? Well. Back in August 2023, um, Council gave us an additional $2 million for leakage, and as part of that, there was a um, a review into efficiency. So that report um, has been commissioned by Wellington City Council, and that is due out this week, I understand. Why why Um, did they commission that report? Did they not have confidence in what you were telling them? Transparency was the issue, was it? You'd have to talk... um, about it because a lot of the things that are in it relate to the regional model and they need to go and talk to the region about it. They need to talk to the other mayors and the other councils 
and work out what needs to be done. All I can say is that we were looking for the old water reform model to give us into a, into a different um, that has got to have a new um, it is going to have a new look under the current government. Um, but that's where we're looking for. The future is a different model than what we've got now. Okay, but are you welcoming this report coming out? I mean, that the, the I think some of the uh, the Dominion Post's reporting has suggested the early drafts weren't, you know, were pretty critical of some aspects of the way in which you were operating. Look, you know, I'm the first to say the model's not perfect, and we can always learn and do things better. There does need to be the investment in our systems and our processes and people, which is also lacking, in order to to kick us up a notch. So, yep, welcome it. Very good. Thank you very much for coming on. Really appreciate that. Tonya Haskell there, who is the Chief Executive of Wellington Water, uh, very much uh, in the eye of a water storm, really, in Wellington at the moment. Much to come on this over the next week or so. Well, more countries have halted funding to the largest UN agency operating in Gaza as the crisis deepens over the alleged role of some of its staff in the 7 October Hamas attacks on Israel. Now, New Zealand will review its $1 million contribution before paying it, but says it does that every year in any case. The BBC's Lepeka Pelham has more. Details of the Israeli dossier were first reported by the New York Times. It says that intelligence gathered showed nearly 200 UNRWA workers were Hamas or Islamic Jihad operatives without providing detailed evidence. It said at least 12 workers crossed into Israel on the 7th of October. Of those, a schoolteacher and his son were alleged to have assisted in the abduction of an Israeli woman. Another two were said to have participated in raids on southern Israeli farming communities. A social worker is alleged to have helped bring the body of a dead Israeli soldier back to Gaza and another is accused of arming himself with an anti-tank missile. Now, Anwar has sacked nine of the employees accused of participating in the attacks on the 7th of October and says it is investigating the claims. We're joined now by former Prime Minister Helen Clark, who led the UN Development Programme, which oversees Anwar. Uh, welcome to the programme. Thank you. What is the significance of the funding being suspended like this? This is the biggest platform for getting humanitarian aid into Gaza right now. A population that's 85% displaced, people are close to starvation, they're going without medical supplies. If you're going to defund and destroy this platform, then the misery and suffering of the people under bombardment in Gaza can only increase and you can only have more more deaths. So it's most regrettable that countries have acted in this precipitous way to defund the organisation on the basis of allegations. What do you make of those allegations? Well, of course the allegations are serious. The UN Code of Conduct clearly would not tolerate any such thing. I led an organisation that had tens of thousands of people on contracts at any one time. Could I say hand on heart, no one ever did anything wrong? No, I couldn't. But what I would say is any allegations would be fully investigated and the results would be made publicly known. That's exactly what the head of UNRWA has said. It's what the Secretary General is saying. That process is underway. But this is not a time to be just cutting off the funding because a small minority of UNRWA staff face allegations. So you don't think there's any justification with suspending the funding 
until the outcome of that investigation is known? Absolutely not. A lot of people could starve to death or die because they didn't get their medicines by then. You know, the United States has been a major and generous funder of UNRWA. If the US withholds its money, if Germany withholds its money, if other big donors withhold their money, UNRWA goes down. And as I say, there's no ready alternative to what UNRWA does right now. What do you make of the timing of the release of this dossier um, coming, you know, about the same time as the uh, International Court of Justice ruling? I think it's no coincidence at all that these allegations were made known uh, at the very time of the International Court of Justice uh, ruling. I think it was an attempt to deflect attention from the very significant rulings of the court, which called on Israel to prevent genocidal acts, to act to suppress genocidal speech, uh, to let humanitarian aid flow. You know, this this was a decision that was very important for the people of Gaza. So to try to then sort of have that uh, dismissed while uh, bringing these other claims to the fore, I, th- I think it's fairly obvious what was happening. In terms of perception, I mean, do you think it has been effective in that way? Has the uh, the reputation of Anwar been, been irreparably tainted by this? Well, I don't think irreparably tainted because everyone understands that out of... 13,000 employees in an occupied territory, it's almost inevitable that there would be some sympathy among some for Hamas. Uh, that That's frankly just human nature. But the code of conduct of the UN is very clear. You cannot uh, do the things which were alleged, which is why the head of one immediately dismissed those who, who he could find and who were, were still alive. But I think it's fair to note also that Israel would rather like UNRWA to be disestablished permanently. UNRWA serves this uh, diaspora uh, Palestinian population of 5.3 million who are refugees or descendants of those who fled in 1947. And uh, Israel would rather not have such an agency at all. So I think we need to see these actions in this bigger context as Mm. well. Okay, just finally, uh, the New Zealand government will review its uh, contribution before paying it. Uh, What would you urge it to do? Well, firstly, I'm proud of New Zealand that it hasn't rushed in just to defund. Uh, By June, when uh, MFAT would normally make the payment, anything could have happened. I I remain an eternal optimist that perhaps the ceasefire negotiation talks going on in Paris at the moment might materialise in a ceasefire of some weeks more humanitarian aid flowing and hopefully a political process getting underway uh, for the two-state solution. So I think, you know, waiting to review until uh, June to see what the lie of the land is, what the UN investigation has turned up, I think MPAT and the New Zealand government have done exactly the right thing. Thank you for coming on with us this morning. That was former Prime Minister uh, Helen Clark, who also led the UN Development Programme, which oversaw uh, ANWA. You've been listening to Morning Report Top Stories. 